for playing the fiddle, as we call it in Kentucky. I think that's what they call them. They call them violins in other places in the world, I think. But in Kentucky, we call them a fiddle. Um, I want to start off by saying thank you to uh, all the well-wishers this past week. I had quite a few emails and texts on Wednesday and Thursday um, because the Chicago Cubs are officially done for the season. And uh, uh, so I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I am, I'm not sad, though. I'm not discouraged. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to opening day, which I'm sure you have on your calendars, April 3rd, 2016. It's only five short months away, and I'm going to keep telling myself for the next couple of weeks that um, until the wounds kind of heal a little bit. Um, but we're going to talk about wounds a little bit this morning when we get into this parable. So here we are. We're in this series on the parables. We started at the beginning of September. Now we find ourselves at the end of October, and we're going to look at parables all the way up until Advent, which is only five short weeks away. So uh, as you're planning, you only have nine weeks left to do your Christmas shopping as well. So you might want to get on that. So this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. So if you have your Bible or an app on your phone, you can follow along or the words will be on the screen. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So this morning, I just want to start by saying this. Grace, when it's received, is pretty great. Would you agree? Yeah. Receiving, being on the receiving end of grace is a great thing. Being on, on the receiving end of mercy is a pretty fantastic thing. Being on the receiving end of forgiveness is a pretty amazing thing. But when it comes to giving grace, or giving forgiveness, or being merciful to someone else, that's where it gets a little difficult. That's where it gets a little messy. Grace and forgiveness are, are great ideas. They're great concepts. As long as we're not talking about the father who berated you. Or the spouse 
who cheated on you. Mercy is a great idea. It's a great concept as long as we're not talking about the boss who fired you or the relative who abused you. They're all great ideas and concepts, especially when you're on the receiving end. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10 says, Every heart knows its own bitterness. Meaning we've, we've all been hurt. We all carry hurt, and we've all hurt other people. I saw a quote this past week, and um, I, I didn't write it down, so this is going to be a little bit of a paraphrase. But it said, of course I'm going to hurt you. Of course you're going to hurt me. Of course we're going to hurt each other. It's the very condition of existence. To become spring or to become summer or to become fall means you accept the risk of winter. I thought that was a beautiful quote, but at the same time it was a little bit terrifying. Because I thought through this, as I was thinking through this parable, I sat on the edge of my daughter's bed last night. And I thought to myself, I am going to hurt you. And there's going to be a time where you hurt me. It's just the way it goes. So there's a beauty in grace, but it's also a little bit terrifying. Now maybe this morning you sit here and at some point in your life you were betrayed, or you were abandoned, or you were abused, or rejected, or victimized, or you were bullied, or embarrassed, or ignored. And maybe some of you this morning we sit here and we've done those things to other people. We've betrayed and we've abused and neglected. So that's where I wanted to start this morning, with just a reminder that grace is messy. I think oftentimes we make it flowery, and we say, oh, you know, you guys go to church, and you talk about forgiveness and grace, and that's all well and good. But grace isn't really easy to talk about. It's difficult. So we want to start with that. The reminder of grace is messy, and that we all are hurt at some point. It made me think of the musical theologian of my youth, Michael Stipe the lead singer of R.E.M., who came up with the song, Everybody Hurts, right? Everybody Hurts. And the hurt goes both ways. We hurt, and people hurt us. So here we go. Peter comes to Jesus, and Peter has a question for Jesus. And as usual, Peter's question is pretty loaded. There's a, he has an agenda with what he's asking. Now, it's a general question, but I feel pretty certain that he had a specific situation in mind. He says, Lord... How many times should I forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Seven times? He throws out a number. Seven times. On the eighth time, if someone hurts me, can I just say no? That's, I've had enough. Enough hurt is enough. And so he throws out the number seven. Now, the interesting thing is in the first century, Jewish rabbis taught that you should forgive three times. But on the fourth time, you don't necessarily have to forgive. And so Peter, I think, is probably thinking in his mind, I'm being, I'm being really gracious right now. Like, Jesus is going to love this answer. And so Peter asks, seven times? Come on, Jesus, would, would you say seven? I mean, I would, but that's just me. And so he's probably feeling pretty sure that he's going to get a compliment or that Jesus is going to say, Peter. Really? I mean, seven times? Why can't all the disciples be like you? You're amazing. He thinks that's what's going to happen, I'm sure. Now, I can't help but think that Peter may have had someone in mind when he asked this question. 
I just kind of feel sure that there's a face and a story to go behind the question. That there's someone in his life that's hurt him. Not once, not twice, but maybe exactly seven times. And he's ready to be done. Enough is enough, right? And I know for some of us this morning, it's not about the number. It's not about a certain amount of times that someone has wronged you. But sometimes it's about the degree of the offense that's been done to you. Maybe they didn't hurt you seven times. Maybe they just hurt you one time. But that one time was huge. That one time was like times seven. It was significant. And it was overwhelming. So it's just my feeling. I think Peter had, had someone specific in mind. So who might it have been? Well, I think it's safe to assume that it was probably someone close to him. That's not always the case. That's not always the case that it's someone close to you. There are exceptions. I'm sure some of you have had someone who came into your life just long enough to hurt you, to bring you pain, destruction, devastation, and then they were gone. But for most of us, the people who hurt us the most are the people that we love. Would you agree? Yeah. The reason that is, is because the people that we love, we give them our heart. And when we give people our heart, we give them a power. And it's a power that can be, and will be, misused, mistreated, abused. And it brings about a lot of damage. And I think there are a lot of us who learned at some point in your life that, hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give someone else my heart because that's just too much of a risk. And so we've learned to put walls around our hearts to not let anyone in for fear of what damage they could do to our hearts. Because when you are the one who's hurt, you're not going to let that happen again. Because someone you love and someone you trusted, they let you down, they hurt you, betrayed you. And so you're not going to give anyone that power again. So I don't have any idea who it was for Peter, what face or what name he may have had in mind. But I know that behind this question, for all of us, is probably a name and a story. And honestly, I think Peter's question seems good. It's, it's a reasonable question. How much is too much? How far is too far? How much can I let someone walk you know, all over the top of me? When does forgiveness run out? When does the hurt in my life, when does the pain that's been caused me, when does that outweigh grace? And Jesus' response, in typical Jesus fashion, he says, I tell you not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. All of a sudden, Peter's probably let down a little bit because he thought he was being gracious and Jesus kind of outdid him. Maybe, some, maybe some, your version may, might say 70 times 7, but it's not about the number. Jesus isn't saying you need to forgive someone 77 times, and on the 78th time you can say no. He's not saying you, can, you have to forgive somebody 490 times, and on the 491st time, no. That's enough. That's not what he's saying at all. He's answering Peter's question with hyperbole, with absurdity. He's throwing out a number that's so large... It's ridiculous. Now, we might say, okay, yeah, 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 I get that. Grace is greater than, and we should always offer forgiveness. But let me tell you about my story. Let me tell you about what happened to my broken heart. 
Let me tell you about my pain and the injustice that I've experienced. But Jesus says grace is greater. Grace is greater than being broken. Grace is greater than the hurt, greater than the pain. And I think we accept this generally as truth because Jesus said it. And I would caution us on that this morning, just accepting it because we say, well, Jesus said it because it's true. Because I know that with this in particular, we wrestle with that. Because it might not feel true. It's easy to say grace is greater, but when you've been hurt, it doesn't feel true. If you're the one who's been hurt, if you're the one who's been abandoned or abused, if that's you, you might say, yeah, I get it. Jesus says true, I get it. But it doesn't feel true. Because it doesn't feel responsible that I can let someone just continue to hurt me and hurt me. And so Jesus gives this parable to kind of help us, I think, emotionally get our arms around what it means to forgive and to show mercy and to show grace. So just a quick recap. We have an unmerciful servant, we'll call him, as the parable does. And he owes his master a ton of money. And he begs for patience with the master. And the master goes beyond patience. The master could have uh, reduced the debt, or maybe like reduced the interest. But that's not what he does. He eliminates the debt altogether. The unmerciful servant then goes out for the master, runs into the first person that owes him a pretty insignificant amount of money and begins to choke him. As he's choking him, his fellow servant says, please be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Which is interesting because those are the exact same words that he used with the master. Be patient with me. And rather than patience, the unmerciful servant has the man thrown into prison. Which is an interesting aside because in the first century, if you were to throw someone into prison, you had to take on the expense of that. You had to pay for it. So the unmerciful servant in throwing his fellow servant into prison is taking on a little bit of responsibility financially. And most scholars agree that his expense would have outweighed the debt that he was owed in the first place. So let's talk about that for a second, the debt. We have a servant who owes this unmerciful servant a hundred silver coins. Scholars kind of bicker about how much that actually is, but it doesn't matter. What's important is that it pales in comparison to the debt that the unmerciful servant has to his master. It's, not, it's insignificant. On the flip side, the unmerciful servant owes his master 10,000 bags of gold. 10,000 bags of gold. That is a lot of gold. Again, scholars bicker about how much it actually is. Some say it's $150 million. Some say it's into the billions. Once again, it's not about the number. The number does not matter. It's about the fact that this is a whole lot of money. It's the equivalent, in, in my mind, I was trying to think of what, what would this be for us. It'd be the equivalent of Jesus saying, a servant owes his master a gajillion dollars. It really is. It's, a, it's hyperbole. It's absurdity. The point is, it's a whole lot of dough, dough, and it's a whole lot of dough that this servant does not have, and it's a whole lot of dough that this servant cannot pay back. Honestly, if he were to live hundreds of lifetimes, he would not be able to pay it back. It's not about the number. It's not about 10,000 bags of gold. It's about the ridiculousness of the debt. I think sometimes we've lulled ourselves into believing that Jesus didn't use humor in his teaching. I, I think he does use humor. I think we just don't often get it, and I think this is one of those times. Because if you were there listening to Jesus in the first century and you would have heard him say that, 10,000 bags of gold, you would have laughed a little bit. Because it's ridiculous. It's astronomical. 
Of course, a servant can't pay back that kind of money. But that's the picture that Jesus paints in the parable. It's a debt that the servant could never repay. Not unlike our own debt that we have with God that we can never repay because of our own sin and our own wrongness and our own brokenness and pain that we've caused others. So here in the parable, I think there's something unique going on in my mind. Because the parable gives us a little bit of a reflection of our own standing with God. All of us have sinned, and our sin has racked up this amazing, absurd amount of debt. An amount of debt that we could never repay. And we live in denial of it. We come up with ways to try to, try to, try to justify it or, or pretend that the debt's not there. We, we compare ourselves to other and say, others and say, this person's done way more wrong stuff than me. His debt has to be, you know, way beyond mine. We compare ourselves and try to make it okay. Or we might accept a little bit of the fact that we, we have a debt and we try to earn our way out of it. And you can't do that either. It's too big. No amount of good deeds or, or good acts will balance the books for us. And so this parable in Matthew 18 kind of gives us this reminder that we all owe our own huge debt. The Bible says that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that if we've broken one of the commandments, we're guilty of breaking all the commandments. That's a debt that we can't cover. That's a debt that we can't repay. So Jesus in the parable is alluding to our own insurmountable debt that we have. He alludes to, in my opinion, his own coming death that's going to cover that debt. He alludes to a grace and a forgiveness that's coming to us all. And he's saying that the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we're about to receive, that we have to take care of that, and we're responsible to give that to those around us. So as I was, I was thinking about this parable um, this week, um, I couldn't help but think of the cross, the image of the cross. There's, there's one here in the room, and there's one back here in the alcove. And so I, this morning, I just kind of want us to take a minute and, and visualize and, and look at the cross. And I'm going to move. And you guys don't, over here, you might not be able to see me, but that's okay. You don't have to see me. You can look at that cross in the middle. Hey, good morning. How's it going? So we have, we have this image of a cross, the visualization of a cross. And the cross is a pretty interesting thing, especially in light of this parable. Because the cross has two dimensions to it. It has this vertical dimension that we could equate to our relationship with God. Our relationship to our creator, this visual, God and me, this vertical dimension. But the cross also has a horizontal beam, a horizontal dimension, which I would equate to our relationship with each other. Now, what's interesting about the cross is the two dimensions aren't separate. They intersect, they come together at some point. The truth is that Christianity, this thing that we do, this journey that we're on, is not just about our relationship with God, the vertical dimension, the divine up and down. It's not just about receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness on this up and down level. We can walk through these doors every Sunday morning and say, church is about God and me. But it's bigger than that. The cross challenges that idea with the horizontal dimension. The horizontal is the human element, the flesh, 
stuff. It's the human relationships. It's the stuff that we talked about earlier. It's the stuff that brings hurt and pain. And the thing I love about it, the thing, one of the reasons I couldn't get it out of my head is because it really is the mystery of, of the incarnation, really. It's God, the vertical, putting on flesh, the horizontal. And God cares about the horizontal, and he cares that we care about the horizontal as well. And so this parable, when it comes to mercy, grace, and forgiveness, as much as you have received in the vertical dimension, as much grace as we have received in the vertical, as much mercy as we have received in the vertical, as much forgiveness as we have received in the vertical, we're supposed to extend that to each other, extend that on the horizontal. Now, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. The extent to which we're willing to give grace and mercy and forgiveness horizontally to each other, the extent in which we're willing to give grace to each other, reveals the extent to which we've truly received grace vertically from God. It reveals how much we've actually received and how much we just kind of fake it. It all becomes somewhat real when we're required to extend grace to someone else on the vertical. This vertical and horizontal, this place where the two meet, that's us. That's where we're supposed to find ourselves, in that, in that intersection. That's the body of Christ being God in and to the world. So, what does that have to do with this parable? Verse 31. I think, that's, I think verse 31 is, is one of those verses that we often overlook in the bigger scheme of the parable because it doesn't necessarily relate to grace, mercy, peace. Verse 31 is often, uh, I think, left out. But it says this, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. The other servants, fellow servants, were outraged. And they went to their master and told him everything. So Jesus points out that the fellow servants, the others, the horizontal community here, they went and told the master what had happened. They had seen this guy in their community, this unmerciful servant. They had seen him ha receive so much grace, but they, they, he wasn't able to demonstrate it. He wasn't able to give grace away. And it says they were outraged. Why were they outraged? Because they lived in community. These servants would have lived together as they served their master. And the master in this community... It's interesting because he doesn't treat his servants as servants. He treats his servants as daughters and sons. They have this master who is over the top good, over the top gracious, and they live in this community together, the horizontal. And when one of their own is shown grace but refuses to give it, they're outraged. Some versions say they were greatly distressed or that they were very sad. And I think all those are appropriate responses. When we see someone in our own community who's received a huge amount of grace but can't demonstrate it, that's a cause for sadness and outrage. And so it seems a bit strange to talk, uh, to see a parable that's largely about grace and forgiveness and then to talk about outrage, that there's a little bit of a call for outrage. But if I'm honest... Look, that's the only way this thing works. That's the only way this community thing works. This little community on the north side of Indianapolis, it's the only way it works. It's not going to work if we just receive it and refuse to give it. 
So when we see sisters and brothers who've received God's grace act ungracious, it's a big problem. And when we see someone who's received incredible grace and they become judgmental to other people whose struggles aren't like their own, that's a reason for sadness and concern and outrage. That as a church, we're not going to be okay with ungrace. We can't be. It's not going to be okay when one of our own is judgmental or condemning or gossiping. Particularly about if someone comes through these doors and they don't look like they do, or they don't talk like they do, or they struggle with different things that they struggle with. It's not okay. It's a call for outrage. Because honestly, that is us. That is us. We're no better. Our debt is no smaller. We're the same. And so I think it's interesting that in this community, this community of servants, this group, this mess of horizontal, you see this determination because they're outraged. You see this determination that they're going to reflect what the master's heart is. And they're going to extend what he's given to them, to everyone around them. And so Jesus says it simply, but powerfully through the parable. You're forgiven, so forgive. You've been shown an absurd amount of mercy, so be merciful. We'll never be asked to forgive more than we've already been forgiven. And we're given a responsibility. If you're sitting in this room today and consider yourself a Christ follower, we have a responsibility to be Christ-like in our forgiveness and in our mercy and in our grace. Amen? Father, we are grateful for the grace that you've shown us. We're thankful for the reminder of our own debt through your word. And we're even more thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who eliminated that debt. Who didn't just reduce the debt, but eliminated it all together. God, we're thankful for your presence in this place this morning. Amen.